Hi, everybody. John Moe here. I don't usually say this before a show, but this episode gets pretty graphic in describing sexuality, anatomy, drugs, self-harm, and religion. But it's impossible to talk to our guest without going there. Is depression funny? Depression is really funny because it's just like, it's this thing that's not real. Depression is something that I've suffered from for a long, long time. And it's taken me to the brink of suicide and death. And um, yet I also know coming out the other side is that it's something that I created. That is something that I do have some control over. That's the thing about it. It's like I realized that I can change this, but I do need to work somehow to get out. And so to acknowledge that it, that exists, but that it's not really real is really funny. Something wrong with me, I got a sadness I can't shake now. Is there something I can't take now? It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Come in, have a seat. Snacks are over there. We talk about depression here, the disease of depression. Clinny D, we call it. We talk about it with comedians and with funny people. We talk about it honestly openly, and with humor because we think talking about it is good and helps. Hi, I'm Margaret Cho. I am a comedian, and I am in Los Angeles. We are by a pool. There's dogs outside. Margaret Cho is one of the most popular and groundbreaking comedians of the last few decades. Besides performing stand-up, she's a crusader in the LGBTQ community. She's an actor, author, fashion designer, musician. She played Kim Jong-un on 30 Rock. And she was in Face Off as John Travolta's FBI colleague. In her comedy, she does not hold back. Like it all. I'm going to get in trouble, but I'll just tell you, he is so gay. John Travolta is so gay. Not just gay. Like, he's not just gay. Like, he doesn't just like men. Oh, the, he is like Oscar Wilde gay. Like, that kind of crazy, We spoke at like, her publicist's house and actually ended up talking dogs for quite a while. Margaret loves dogs. But, and this is important, she still finds dog neglect to be sometimes funny. You know, like when movies like Beverly Hills Chihuahua comes out, everybody wants it. Well, remember Paris Hilton had Tinkerbell, right. a tiny little dog. Everybody wanted to get it. But then, then the, the shelters Then the shelters LA fill up with... Filled up with sad chihuahuas with like sh- shirts coming off the shoulder like flash dance. Because like, the shirt's all stretched out because they've been wearing it for a year. <laughs> In the street. Flash dance chihuahuas. She was so sad. Like their little shoulders... <laughs> It's so sad as Working well. at the steel mill. Yeah. Dancing it's, on the side. It's a mania. <laughs> it's so cute. Margaret says what she wants about dogs and about people. But I feel bad for, for people in Peachtree City because I know that there are gays in these small southern towns. Of course there are, but they, they don't have a community to come out to. So a lot of the gay people can't come out. They don't feel like they can come out of the closet. They, they you know, end up going to church a lot and they get married and have kids. And that's not the answer. And I want to tell these gay guys, you know, no matter how much you love the Lord, you will never love the Lord as much 
as you love cock. You hear that mix of laughter and uncomfortable groaning just there? That is Margaret Cho's comedy. Maybe it offends you or delights you, but regardless, you're often surprised she's saying it out loud. And she doesn't just say shocking things. She kind of shouts them from the rooftops. This, despite the culture she grew up in. I grew up in San Francisco, uh, and my uh, family came over from Korea in 1964, and I was born in 1968. And there's quite a lot of mental illness in my family. Um, A great number of people who have gone away for a long time. You know, that Korea is that culture that they, anybody who's different or has issues, they are out of sight. Where do they go away to? They go to like a hospital. That's something Margaret has done on more than one occasion herself, checked into hospitals. She describes it as hitting pause when the depression or other factors get overwhelming. That uh, is sort of typical. I've had relatives, um, you know, my ancestry, like I suppose I have a great, great grandmother who um, was very nasty and mean and she was considered the ugliest woman in the village. And she would dress in men's clothes and berate everyone and be really, really angry and crazy and cruel and um, smoked a pipe and... Everybody always says in my family, you remind me, Shu, you just like her. So, you know, I I take after some crazies. To hear Margaret describe it, there is the proper, dignified Korean way of behaving. And then there's the feelings and thoughts that that behavior covers up. She's very interested in expressing the latter. She's like the racy voice of Korean cultural subtext. Here's Margaret from her special, I'm the One That I Want. And my parents owned a bookstore there. And my mother was in charge of the gay porn. So every day she would unpack boxes of gay porn and try to talk to me about it. These boobs, this There's book for gay. Because gay, they like ass. They like ass so much, they don't know what to do. Margaret has experience with depression, eating disorders, substance abuse. She says while mental illness was common in the Korean culture she grew up in, it wasn't talked about much, wasn't treated much either. It's almost a quality of Korean culture. There's a quality called Han, which is um, not really translatable in English. There's no English equivalent, but the, the, it bear sort of loosely means that the, the pain of life is overwhelmingly beautiful. That's sort of what it means, that the um, suffering is exquisite and it's part of our uh, being. Um, and you don't want to mess with your Han by taking antidepressants. Or so is, is it the idea that you feel everything so deeply and then yes. that's what is crushing you? It's crushing you and the pain of it is... Uh, Mighty. Uh, as you know, when a, a, a violet is crushed, the petals are crushed, the smell is um, 
so sweet, mm. but it only occurs when it's been completely macerated and mashed down. So that's sort of the uh, take of Koreanness and uh, and depression. Um, it's part of who we are. A lot of Margaret's comedy has to do with being very open about things, open and loud. She says her parents' generation struggled with what was okay to be open about. I know that that generation of Koreans coming over to America in the 60s and 70s, they um, had this incredible identity crisis because they were coming from an extremely rigid culture, which uh, everything um, was regulated. They had very little social life. There was no relationships between like men and women until you got married. It was It was like pretty drab. And then they came over to America where... In the height of the 70s, the me era, and all of this like crazy stuff going on around them, um, you know, they were shell-shocked. And uh, so um, I knew of one family of, um, they had done a little bit well for themselves in America, and they had gotten a white wall-to-wall carpet. And then the day after they got it, one of their um, brothers who had come over with them from Korea shot himself on the carpet. And so the bloodstain was just all the way across the, the floor, but they didn't want to change um, the carpet because they had just gotten it. So they just kind of moved like the furniture over the bloodstain and um, just kind of, you know, you would see it peeking out from underneath the, the sofa. <laughs> and so that's sort of like the way that Koreans deal with suicide or depression. They just kind of try to cover it up. Move the furniture around. Move the furniture around it. Um, they're like, well, you know, this is this is what's going on here. And so, so we're their just decorating motif was denial. Denial. Yeah. And and um, a kind of forced happiness. Like everything is gonna be fine. We're gonna show we are all okay. That kind of full speed ahead approach existed in Margaret's own family as well. Make things nice, ignore the parts that aren't. Outrun them, really. My family have very little empathy for anybody or anything like um, tragedy. They sort of don't really care. Like the the most typical thing of this is um, my uh, parents were throwing a, an anniversary party for my grandparents' 50th wedding anniversary, and they couldn't find a venue that they could afford that was large enough to uh, accommodate everyone. This was immediately after the Jonestown Massacre in Guyana, a mass suicide and homicide connected to the People's Temple, a religious group based in the Bay Area. 909 people died. The People's Temple in San Francisco was available. So they rented out the People's Temple um, and threw my grandparents' party there. And uh, my mother, who's some sort of a a part-time psychic and medium uh, said she was getting ready for the party and putting all the stuff out. And, and she saw many very angry ghosts appalled that she was having this party there. And they were talking to her and telling her this is wrong. This is going to be a terrible party. <laughs> and it was. And it, was. <laughs> it was a terrible, terrible party. Haunted anniversary party. Haunted anniversary party, but you know, nobody really cared. And, <laughs> I mean, but that's a kind of like they're not uh, my family. They're not sentimental people. Yeah. They're not necessarily very respectful mm. people. Um, but you know, they needed a venue, yeah. and that was available. And so, you know, so Korean culture and family habits would dictate that you don't bother too much with feelings, and you plow ahead into polite society. 
Margaret Cho's habits dictate that you don't get hung up on whether people will be offended by your comedy and you plow ahead into often risque material. So yeah, some difference, but lots of plowing ahead. I have the biggest pubic mound in the whole world. What is that? It's huge. It's huge. No, literally, I could deliver a sermon off this mound. Okay? It's gigantic. It's like a portobello mushroom, all right? And I, I don't know how to get rid of it at all. I, what kind of crunches do you have to do? When are they going to come out with the video Pubic Mound of Steel? I don't know. Was comedy a big thing in the house, too? Um, comedy was... It, it, it was something that we shared. We would all, as a family, watch stand-up comedy, even Richard Pryor's movies, which I think back now, and I think, wow, that's actually kind of incredible that my family was like... We were like me and my brother probably like younger than 10 years old watching this stuff, and it was kind of like we didn't really even know what was going on or what the jokes were about, but uh, it was um, something that uh, brought us together. If you're too young to remember Richard Pryor, frank and raunchy comedy about race and sex and drugs. So there were straight-laced elements to Margaret's upbringing and stuff that was not straight at all. And they owned a gay bookstore, which um, was also a very big deal. Um, So different, you know, because there's such a denial of gay culture in Korea now. You know, they have gay pride parades and you're not allowed to take photographs because somebody might see you there. And they would <laughs> the know parade. that at the parade and know that you were, were maybe gay or supportive of gay people. I have a lot of gay friends in Korea. I go there and hang out. And they have no um they they have no way of being out or comfortable or having open open sort of uh understanding that they're gay, they can't tell their parents, they can't tell their workmates. There's all these uh, sort of uh, confirmed bachelors, Mm. these guys that I know, who just can never, ever come out. And they're, you know, all of these women are always trying to, like, go out on dates with them. And they're, like, they they have to just push their their real selves down. So um, my parents having a gay bookstore is, like, an incredibly... I, I, I don't know. It's so outlaw. When did depression come calling for you? When did, when did you notice it? Um, I think I always had it. You know, I don't remember a time where it didn't exist that there, uh, you know, I would lay in bed. I would probably be like five or six years old and I would lay in bed and I would be worried about the world, the planet running out of water. And I would really think about it. And I would try to think about salt water and if you could drink salt water. I didn't really know that you couldn't drink salt water or like water in pools. Can you drink water in pools? Well, I don't know. Like, and I would think about it and I would get so scared. Um, and I also, we also had a lot of earthquakes in San Francisco. So that was sort of this thing where you were like always trying to look for where the doorway was and a constant feeling of... Um, Crazy doom, impending doom. Yeah, dread, really. Dread. Yeah. Existential dread. 
sometimes related to natural disaster, sometimes related, like, and then also in, in the 80s, um, there was the whole nuclear holocaust day thing, after. the day after, and aftermath, and, um, you know, all of this stuff, like this consciousness that we could possibly blow ourselves up, and then we'd have to deal with the radiation, and you can't eat anything, your hair is falling out, and everybody's bleeding out of their butt. I'm of the same generation as Margaret, and I cannot overstate how doomed we felt growing up. There was absolute certainty we would die in a nuclear blast. You just hoped it would be quick. And that's all the hope that you had. If you're a young person with depression, it was like not just news, but entertainment was constantly verifying that life was pointless. When you're surrounded by that, and then also like, there was goth, you know, you, you could, there was sort of an identity of fashion um, connected. So I was really goth when I was a, a teen and, you know, like I wanted to go to like cemeteries and, and right. um, do like rubbings with the pencil on the, you know, the gravestones and, sure. then, you know, go to like rock shows. And so that then, you know, you had something social attached to your depression, something that kind of was like, oh, this is an identity. Mm. This is kind of fun. And then I was going to this, uh, I was doing a lot of ecstasy. So this, in the 80s, there was a church in Berkeley that sold ecstasy. And it was a, it was a church of ecstasy. And uh, it was semi-legal. And it, uh, the church sold ecstasy. And they also uh, was a massage school. So it was like, so you would do all of this ecstasy, which really made your depression worse. Um is it takes, uh, robs you of your serotonin. It sort of lives in your spinal fluid forever and ever. It's very weird. A lot going on. Much of it, not so healthy. But she also picked up a healthy habit from her dad. My father, uh, who is very creative and very artistic and very um, smart guy. He writes Korean joke books, right? Yeah, he writes a lot of different stuff. He, he goes into this genre uh, sort of writing where he was, he was writing like these archived jokes, folk tales um, for speakers that you could use in a speech if you were giving one. And um, then he also does like s sort of, spy novels and espionage. He gets a very into genre writing, you know, and kind of tries his hand at genres. And so he's a smart guy, but he definitely, I think, always had depression and then found a way to kind of manage it through exercise. Um, that's sort of a constant throughout my uh, childhood and, and also adulthood is that that's sort of a one place of real uh, relief is through physical activity and exertion um, because uh, we as a family or my parents never drank alcohol. Um, you know, we're not gamblers. We're not, there was nothing excessive about um, anything except for physical uh, activity. Margaret says neither talk therapy nor meds have worked all that well for her. Vigorous exercise is still her preferred way of addressing depression. So Margaret grows up and gets into comedy. The bleakness of the world and her brain chemistry and her habits make their way into her act. And it turns out to be good timing. And, you know, when I started, what was really popular, uh, there was a guy named Rick Reynolds. He did a show called Only the Truth is Funny. And it was um, a kind of precursor to uh, guys like Bill Hicks, um, and now I guess you would say somebody like Mark Marin or um, even Louis C.K. 
Kind of angry, um, edgy. Yeah, edgy and um, sort of a truth teller, but also a, a sort of a doomsday prepper in a way. Right. Like, a, like an old school doomsday prepper. I don't know, but like this kind of like negative um, yet optimistic view of um, whatever the world has to offer. And, and so... Uh, that was a style of comedy. What do you mean negative yet optimistic? Negative yet optimistic. Like there was a kind of thing where like self-hatred became super cool. Like there was a, the comic book um, Hate um, or Dan, Dan Clow's Eight Ball. This kind of misery became really fashionable. And then we all wanted to be like Janine Garofalo who had the science of like self-hatred down. That she had this really good way of like looking super cool, but hating herself. And that's like what we all strive to be. This kind of edgy, dark style performed by a skilled young comedian taps into the zeitgeist and she catches on. First in the Bay Area and then around the country. Here's Margaret at the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival. She's 24 years old. I love being here in Montreal. It's a beautiful city. I, I travel a lot. I, I like traveling, but I get kind of nervous when I go to places where there aren't a lot of Asians, like Alabama. <laughs> I was in Mobile, Alabama. I was walking down the street, and this man actually calls me a chink. I mean, he actually called me a chink. I was so mad. I just looked at him. I said, chink? I'm sorry. Chinks are Chinese. I'm Korean. I'm a gook, all right? <laughs> If you're going to be racist, at least learn the terminology. Get like a redneck to English dictionary. Within a year of that appearance, she lands her own sitcom on ABC, which in 1994 meant millions of people watching. It's her big break, and it almost destroys her. More in just a minute. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illness. Not just depression, but all kinds of mental illnesses. We enjoy having a lot of laughs on this show. It's a way of dealing with depression. It's a way of maybe demystifying depression a little bit, making it not so scary. But let's not kid ourselves. It's a serious disease. The good news is that people can get help and get better. And that's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. That could be an awkward conversation, but makeitokay.org is full of information you can use, what to say, what not to say, and stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, or other mental illnesses. Go to makeitokay.org. You can take the pledge to make it okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. Back with Margaret Cho, before her 25th birthday, her show All American Girl premiered. Half-hour sitcom allegedly based on Margaret's life and stand-up work. It was on ABC, millions tuning in. And the show sucked real bad. So how's things going with you and Kyle? Okay. If nothing else, it drives my mom crazy. <laughs> what is it with you and her? It's a never-ending cycle. She finds fault in something I do, so I do something else to upset her even more. She comes down on me for that, and it starts all over again. It's sick, and yet there's something almost beautiful in the dysfunction of it all. Hey, check out the new guy in the Armani department. Margaret wasn't involved in writing the show, 
It got slammed by advocacy groups upset about what they saw as crude Asian stereotypes, slammed by critics for not being funny, and the ratings were awful. So imagine that. Imagine a caricature of your life being shown to millions, and everyone hates it, and they hate you, even though you didn't even write the thing. Oh, and also you have mental problems. The culture of, like, going to the lot and, like, being sort of this isolated city, um, it was weird. I was taking all these fen-fen drugs, the fen-fen, which is a diet pill from the 90s, mm-hmm. which was, like, the worst because it, it was both an upper and a downer at the same time, and it just curbed your appetite, but it also made you crazy. And so we were all doing it. Everybody on every show on the Disney lot was taking some some fen-fen. Every- <laughs> I mean, every show. So if you go back and watch those shows. You would see people, like, the real differences in the way people looked and, and um, a kind of a, an, a dark energy underneath it all. Um, but uh, it, it's, it's funny, but that drug also, anything that kind of messes with your appetite is a weird thing. Is that when you developed eating disorders or did the eating disorders predate that show? I think predated it i think eating disorders is something that's always sort of existed i mean in korean culture too is so focused on um thinness and uh appearance um even now like in south korea it's got the highest rate of plastic surgery in the world um and you know crazy crazy plastic surgery like a lot of it just to make the body look thinner um that's a major major thing and so it's part cultural, but it's also kind of part of depression. If you think like something like that is going to solve it, you know, like all this stuff is going to solve it. So the show starts happening. You get encouraged to lose weight or told to lose weight. I was told. You were told to lose weight. It was not, it was not, uh, not subtle. No, no. It was like, if you don't do this, we can't work. Uh, We can't, we can't, we can't have a show if you're going to be fat. A crash diet led to losing 30 pounds in two weeks, followed by hospitalization for kidney failure. Diet pills, prescription painkillers, alcohol gets in there. It was just really a bad place to be. Um, But, you know, I think uh, I always had some tendencies to be anorexic or bulimic. I'm not a very good anorexic because I could never really get that thin. I was never, nobody ever worried about me. (laughs) (laughs) You weren't skilled enough at it to be. No, I wasn't that good at it. I never got below like 150. I mean, it's, you're not a very good anorexic if you can't get below 150. (laughs) It's fine. I don't really, I don't care now, but uh, then it, it was a very crushing defeat. All American Girl was canceled after one season. So Margaret's out of work with problems in the following areas. Professional, critical, chemical, and mental. But she takes a turn from who Hollywood wanted her to be to who she wanted to be. She got cleaned up. She got sobered up. And she started talking about what happened on stage in a one-woman show called I'm the One That I Want. You know, I've never been in a casting couch situation before. I was kind of excited. I was like, yeah, finally. But this guy was like, I mean, I have pretty low standards. (laughs) But he was just unfuckable. (laughs) 
but he had something that I needed. And I think my management was in on it somehow because they kept trying to make appointments with me to meet him at hotels. <laughs> Am I gonna get really sleepy during the meeting? What does that mean? And this becomes the Margaret Cho that people are most familiar with today. She talks about her mom, but she also talks about sex and LGBTQ issues. She talks about being molested by her uncle. She talks about politics and homophobia, whatever she wants. It doesn't always get a laugh. It isn't always meant to. So much of comedy is taking your own experiences, taking your own point of view, and turning it into something people can relate to. Putting it out there um, and and. You know, standing in front of strangers and presenting it, really. Um, you had some, some kind of rough stuff happening in your life or in your, in your history. How do you turn that into something that's going to make people laugh? Well, it's, it's hard because people have this idea of what comedy is supposed to be. And then when you challenge that, people get really upset. Um, I was doing this show uh, in New Jersey, and this woman's like, she jumps up and she's like, you can't talk about rape on Easter. And I'm like, yeah, I can't talk about rape on Easter because Jesus was a rape baby. And then, so, anyhow. That <laughs> Did that play well in central New Jersey? You know. <laughs> what followed was Margaret yelling at the audience, audience yelling at Margaret, audience yelling at each other, people storming out. Video of it showed up online right away. Margaret later apologized for not being at her best, but she didn't apologize for the material. You know, it was kind of one of those things that you lay, you you throw down the gauntlet like that. People just like are like, oh, my God, this is the, the best thing or this is the worst thing. But at <laughs> least, you know, you're making a statement. And it's funny to me, but it's like um, I want to challenge what people think of as like comedy material or like, you know, why are we always like stuck in like the airplane, people making airline jokes, which actually is valid. I think that there's funny things about that and that can be a, a real thing to make jokes about, but it's not the only thing. And you don't want any barriers to uh, what you can laugh about, what you can make comedy about. You want to just be able to get out there. In, in your mind, is the function of comedy then to to get laughs or is it to shed light on the human condition? I think both. Yeah. Um, I think ultimately it's all about catharsis, whether that ends up in laughter or whether that's in like, oh, this is, ah, you know, like, can you say that? Can she say that? Is it, is that okay? No, it's not. And it's great that it's not. Yeah. <laughs> it's about like busting taboos or being taboo or being just rotten. I'm just so rotten. I love it. I think being rotten is my goal. What's how do you define rotten? I'm just disgusting human being, and that's my favorite thing because it's just like you know, like I'm not moved by anything, and I'm I'm not sentimental in the same way that my family is not. <laughs> so you know, I just I want to be um, able to just say whatever. You want to be able to be shocking, but have a kind of a, a handle on why it's shocking and what's good about it being shocking. Do you think? that's informed by this uh, Korean cultural propriety that you talked about, that you are moving in more of the opposite direction because you grew up with that as a basis? Yeah, and then you uh, you find that um, because you're sort of oppressed growing up that, you, you know, you, you have something to fight against. But, like, what I notice is all of Korean culture is like that. Like, all of our movies are crazy. If you ever watch Korean movies, 
they're really nuts. They're really like out there and really like crazy and taboo busting and rotten. And it's because we had to grow up so oppressed and mm. so restricted and rigid. So that sort of affects the art in a good way. I've watched some Korean soap operas. Yeah. And uh, my wife and I were like, let's give Korean soap operas a chance. It's and fun. it's bananas. It's, it's, it's so involving. And you're just like, I can't stop watching. <laughs> it's so like, because it's just extreme, all of the emotions. And it's like a telenovela. Yeah. Like anything that's like where culture is like really Catholic, it's very like repressed. And all of that comes out in the art. Yeah, but it's it's like a telenovela, but there's more of a sense of impending doom yeah. to it all yeah. the time. It's Han. It's that like exquisite pain of life that sort of touches everything and everyone that's Korean. You know, that's it. That's a big thing. Um, suicide is very big in uh, Korean like movie and TV and music. Like everybody commits suicide. And then like one goes down and then there's a bunch of copycats. Mm. So it's like a crazy, it's a crazy culture too. Like, the Korean show business and how, uh, how many people, um, can't handle the, the business there and they die. Margaret says as bad as things have gotten, she's never attempted suicide herself, but she's had experience being around it as recently as a few days before our interview. What is terrible about suicide is the incredible, um, the, the aftermath is, it, and it's devastating. I, I, my, Roommate, I had a roommate briefly, um, uh, and it was an institution setting for depression. And uh, he, I think it was suicide. This is this was on. Um, it's uh, this was on uh, Friday. He died. So, and he was very young. He was twenty four. Uh, beautiful boy. Just, I, and it's like, I can't, I, I'm, I'm appalled. I'm so angry about it. Um, and, and like, I, I just, I don't have any sadness. I just have rage. So he was a roommate, but then he was in an institution. He was my roommate when I was in an institution. He okay. and I were both in this sort of halfway house. And sort this of not have been all that long ago. rehab situation, not long ago. Um, so he and I lived together uh, a few times over the last two years. And um, yeah, he went back to uh, New York and um, he's dead. And it's like, you know, the seriousness of depression and um, suicide and, and addiction to. Um, you know, it doesn't play. All these conditions are not, they're not games. You know, they really are real and people die. Um, but yeah, the aftermath of somebody's death like that, somebody's suicide is so traumatic, but it's not what you think. It's not sadness. It's like, I'm so pissed at him. Like, so pissed. You're, you're angry at him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm so angry at him because that was the most stupid, insane thing. But there's nothing anybody can do, you know? And, and um, like, I'm, like, so pissed, like, I don't want to go to his funeral. Mm. I'm pissed. And that's not the answer, you know? That's not the good thing to do. Well, you, I imagine you also have empathy for him, yeah. too. Yeah. But then 
But then there's the anger. Yeah, just a lot of anger and a lot of like remorse of like, because uh, the last time I saw him um, was a week before he died and he had wanted me to go out. It was his birthday. And he wanted me to go out and I was like, I don't, I can't. Like I was like, I was really like kind of just blew it off. Like I'm not, I don't, I don't, I don't want to, you know, and I'm mad at myself now because it's like, well, what? And then you go, well, you know what? I'm not going to blow people off anymore. Like this is like a reminder that life is precious. Every moment is precious. And everybody that you know, um, you know them right now, but you might not know them in a minute. They could be gone, especially people who have depression, who have, uh, you know, been in rehab, have been in like institutions, you know, people who have like we're kind of on the front lines of this war against our own darkness. And so, you know, that's like it's a very hard thing. But yeah, so it's like when I'm not I'm not sentimental. I'm very matter of fact about things because it's like I can't afford to be sentimental. It's too heartbreaking. People with depression need to find a path to address their condition, a system that works for them. It's like clothes. You find something that fits, that you feel good wearing. Margaret's preferred style is exercise, occasional inpatient treatment, which she has the means to make happen, and talking about and joking about stuff that some might think is off limits. What do you want your comedy to be in the future? Um, I think that, like, I wanted to sort of, like, have this <laughs> comedy of wellness and, like, I want to, like, do a lot of Tai Chi. Like, I have my whole... Nothing oh, funnier than Tai Chi. It's so funny. And it's, like, that when you have, like, the way that you're supposed to look and, like... When I when I was a little kid, I thought by the year 2000 that I was going to wear everything I wore would be wraparound. <laughs> and I would be really, like... I would look a lot older than I actually look now, which is great. I don't look that old. But I think, like... I still want to have um, that that sort of like weird youthful face, but also very old body and um, like a bob, like a gray bob. Okay. Or I just saw Amy Tan in this movie. She's great. And she had dyed her hair purple. So I would love to have like that gray purple hair and do a lot of Tai Chi. <laughs> but what part of that is comedy? That's just how you know, look. I don't really know, but yeah. that's just kind of like, that's what I'll be like. Um you know, I'll be very into wellness and then I'll be a beekeeper and then I'll have like a beard of bees. That's uh -huh. what I always wanted to like be like a beekeeper and then um, do Tai Chi. We, we went to see Margaret and she's got purple hair and she's doing Tai Chi. Oh, and also a beard of bees. She has a beard of bees. Yeah. <laughs> well, then you have the threat if like people are heckling you. Yeah. Then I have bees to sort of, you and can, I'm saving the planet because we all, we need the honeybee. We need a lot of bees. Mm -hmm. You know, like when you're really Asian, you know, like when you, you know, you know, people that are really fucking Asian, like I can be, I can get fucking Asian. Like I, my Korean name is Moran, Moran. That's my name. And my Korean name, it's the name of Kim Jong-il's production company. So that's how Asian that is. Um, I have a, a friend who's even more Asian. Her name is That's pretty. That's really... Wow. How do you spell that? Is that, is that with like a K or a C? It's just like a sound. <laughs> okay, so like a Q or like a Q. Just like a sound. 
The Hilarious World of Depression is a production of American Public Media. Chrissy Pease is our producer. Executive producer is Kate Moose. Special thanks also to Nate Toby. Our technical director this time around was Michael Osborne. Our theme song is called Pagliacci, written and performed by our good friend Rhett Miller of the band The Old 97s. If Rhett Miller or Old 97s are ever coming through your town, go to those shows. You will have a great time. If you need help, confidential help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. It's free, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Again, that number, 1-800-273-8255. The 8255 spells talk. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illness. MakeItOK.org has information you can check out for yourself or for someone else. Starting a conversation about mental illness can be awkward. Make It OK has tips on what to say, what not to say. It has stories of hope from people who have been there. You can take the pledge to Make It OK at MakeItOK.org. We're on Twitter at THWOFD. That's THWOFD. You can also write to us via email at THWOD, THWOD, at AmericanPublicMedia.org. I'm John Moe. Bye now. <laughs>